0: This is As Much Protein as an Egg, Episode 3. You can look in your RSS for Episodes 1 and 2. Today I'm back, and I'm going to read you two more chapters, at least, probably. These are Chapters 4 and 5. I'm still on lockdown in the home, and I'm still podcasting this book. I have no idea what I will podcast or would podcast after it's over, but I'm giving you the director's cut, the long form of as much protein as an egg. This week I've heard from some of you guys, long-time listeners, who have all of a sudden found new feed info, new material in your feed, new podcasts, new stuff for your ears, and you're writing in to say, hey, I've heard from Paul Rogalinski." David DeZwirik, the Alta Cocker, John Bivens, Gomyo the Hoodie Monk. I tell you what, I haven't heard from you guys in a while, and it feels really good to hear from you. I'll say more about that on the back end. What's going on with me, which is not much, and who knows what else. But for now, I'm going to get into a reading of some chapters. What do you think about that? This is chapter four. Where this all should really begin now is with Artemis Kellogg, having already changed his name, left Kirkland behind for shame and other reasons, and sitting at his small wooden desk in a sunny section of San Francisco. He lived in a mixed-use and mixed-race section of San Francisco, where a street full of Mexican-run establishments was only a few blocks away. Plenty of brown people also lived in houses nearby and on his block. What they did for a living and whether they could actually support themselves on what they made without living in some form of survival that Artemis Kellogg or even you, dear reader, would frown on is anybody's guess. But this is just the way and the history of America, isn't it? As Artemis Kellogg sat at his desk, homeless brown people slept drunk on the sidewalk less than a block away. On this particular day in September, Artemis Kellogg was sitting at his desk drinking coffee. Like the author of this book, he too liked the taste and its roasted dark beans and the jump start that he got from caffeine, but he did not have a small child or a lovely sweetheart. Poor him. He was really missing out. As he drank his coffee and looked out his window at the sky, he witnessed a large jet airplane flying high overhead. This wasn't a strange occurrence. Really, the flight path for San Francisco International Airport SFO, went right over his neighborhood. Plenty of planes flew in and out of the airport every day. When Artemis Kellogg saw this particular plane, however, he thought about a day in September 12 years earlier. The date in Kellogg's kitchen was September eleventh, two 2013. This was exactly 12 years after a very big event in the history of the United States. It had been a major, ima- it had been a major attack on American soil by terrorists. Here's what happened. A group of very angry brown people from the other side of the earth hijacked a similar jet airplane, actually four jet airplanes, and flew them into two buildings in New York City, one in Washington, D.C., and one empty field in Pennsylvania. This was one of the worst things that had ever happened on American soil. At first, it was solemnly called September 11th, to give the date and the events some gravity, but shortly after that it was shortened to 9-11 because it really took too much time and breath to say September 11th whenever you wanted to speak respectfully and with gravity about the terrible events of that day. Artemis Kellogg thought about the brown people who had caused the terrible events and wondered if he could ever direct a movie about something as dramatic and terrible as what they had done. He thought he might actually have to write a script first. That didn't make him happy. Writing a script was a lot of work. Kellogg thought about the brown people on the opposite side of the world who had done this, and the brown people sleeping on the sidewalk down on his block, and he knew they were really very different. For one thing, the brown people on the other side of the earth had never been pushed out of their homes and forced to move by white people. These were the brown people who should really be unhappy, he thought. The people who'd once lived in Ottumwa, Iowa, too. Those particular brown people weren't unhappy anymore. They now owned shares of casinos and made a lot of money. Many of them were fabulously rich and didn't care about much of anything. They could afford not to. Literally, they paid someone else to care or get upset about anything they liked. Two of the planes that were hijacked on September 11th ...crashed into the two tallest buildings in New York City. These buildings were called World Trade Center Towers. They were not actually the center of trade in the world. Actually, several other places around the country and the earth... ...also claimed to be the centers of trade. It was really quite an arrogant presumption. Where was the center of trade in the world? No one knew. The people who worked in these towers in New York City were killed in great numbers on that day. Close to 3,000 people died. This was really very awful. It made the whole country very sad and angry. The white president got himself very angry. He declared a war on terror, even though nobody could figure out quite what that meant. Later, he declared that the mission had been accomplished. Nobody knew what that meant either. In the years after the white president left office, the American president was a brown man named Obama. This rhymed exactly with the name of the man held responsible for planning the attacks on September 11th. That their names rhymed was just a big coincidence. This president went out and ordered men to find and kill the man responsible for the attacks on September 11th. It took them a while to do it, but eventually they did it. Everyone acted like killing this man was a big success for America. Artemis Kellogg didn't think about all of this. Instead, he was watching the plane. He got up and decided to put on pants over his underwear. He did this because he was going outside. Chemicals in his brain had convinced him this was a good thing to do. Chapter 5 Cambridge McGee was widely considered a very famous author, but really, all he wanted to do was play golf. On this particular day in September, he was hitting the links, as he liked to say, thinking about his short game as he finished up 18 holes with his friends. None of his friends were famous authors. They had once held jobs in finance, like hedge fund manager and portfolio consultant, jobs that helped them make gobs of money. That Bainbridge McGee had somehow made a lot of money himself was really just a coincidence. Bainbridge McGee lived in La Quinta, California, right alongside a very beautiful golf course. It was actually the course he was playing on now. His friend Ted Wynn was lining up a putt on 11. McGee and the others liked to call Ted Wynn just big. They called him this, and they called him Big Win, like it was a joke. Big Win did not win at golf very often. He wasn't the best. Far from it. Big Wind did not have washboard abs. He had a big round stomach that stretched over his belt. He tucked his shirt over it and pushed the shirt edge down tight into his underpants. He liked his underpants plain and white. McGee would actually never have been able to afford to live in La Quinta next to a beautiful golf course if it weren't for his father, Kilgore Trout. No matter how many great American novels McGee had penned, he wouldn't have made enough money. These days, you just didn't make money as a writer. McGee would have considered this if he wasn't already living next to a beautiful golf course. Here, he didn't worry about things like that. But back in the old days, when Kilgore Trout wrote 207 science fiction novels and published over 1,000 stories, a writer could make some money. Eventually. For a long time, Kilgore Trout did not make any money as a writer. For a long time, Trout wasn't known by anybody but Elliot Rosewater and barely got anything in return for his stories and novels except a free copy or two of a magazine. In this way, he was actually a lot like Artemis Kellogg, except Kellogg hadn't hadn't written much of anything yet. Trout made his living as an installer of aluminum combination storm windows and screens, Before that, he was in charge of delivering newspapers. Not until he was pretty old, actually, did he make any money as a writer. But then he did, eventually. When Kilgore Trout was the age that McGee is now, he hadn't made much money as a writer. He had only received one fan letter, which was from Elliot Rosewater. Until then, most of his stories and novels got published in magazines with names like Wide Open Beavers and weren't read by anybody at all. They just took up space to make the magazines look thicker. Thick magazines looked like they should cost more than thin ones. They also sold better. Then, in autumn of 1972, something very crazy happened to Kilgore Trout. Here's what it was. On a visit to Midland City to appear at an arts festival, Kilgore Trout met his creator, Kurt Vonnegut. As you'd expect, this freaked him out. On the upside, however... Vonnegut told Trout that he would have only reputable publishers from now on. What this meant was that Trout would start making money. Good for him. After that, Kilgore Trout made a lot of money writing science fiction stories about the end of the universe and things like that. He wasn't a great writer, but his ideas were really very good. He wound up with a heck of a lot of fans. He also became a pioneer in the field of mental health. He won the Nobel Prize for Medicine. When he died in 1981, he left a lot of money to Bainbridge McGee. At the time, Bainbridge McGee was named Bainbridge Trout. He thought that didn't have nearly as good a ring to it. Nobody liked to have the last name of a fish. Because he was also a young, aspiring writer in 1981, who wanted to publish his stories and get famous, McGee decided to change his name. He wanted to do this without riding on his father's coattails. Coattails are fab, are flaps of fabric that hung from the back of a fancy dinner jacket. Really, nobody wore these anymore, except for concert piano players. They were more even use they were even more useless than bootstraps. McGee didn't want publishers and readers to buy his books and make him famous because of who his father was. Then he had a few rough years where nobody wanted to read his work so he let everybody know he was the son of Kilgore Trout. This worked much better for him, and people started to read his first great American novel. Being the son of Kilgore Trout only distinguished his book a tiny bit from the other great American novels that didn't get published or that nobody read. Still, it was enough. That McGee published at all, much less made money from his books and became famous, was really just a great stroke of luck. Sometimes things just happened a certain way. As Big Wynn made his putt on eleven, Bainbridge McGee was looking up and noticing a bright white plane flying overhead. It was not the same plane that Artemis Kellogg had seen, but it looked the same. McGee wondered to himself how high up the plane had to be for it to not make any noise. Truly, he could not hear the plane at all, and Bainbridge McGee had excellent hearing. Though he wanted to ask his friends about the height of the plane, McGee didn't. It wasn't considered polite or decent to speak when another man was putting on the golf course, or the Lynx, as he liked to call it. Around the golf course on all sides were beautiful houses like the one McGee lived in. Each of these houses had a beautiful green lawn that was watered every day by a fancy electric irrigation system. In La Quinta, California... You needed an irrigation system like this because it never, ever rained. In truth, La Quinta was a desert. When white people had come to spread out and live in the desert, they didn't have to worry about pushing away any brown people. Nobody else would be crazy enough to live in a desert, just the cacti. Now, inside of the walls surrounding the houses where McGee and his friends live, it didn't look or feel anything like a desert at all. On the other side of the walls, however, it was an entirely different environment. The place Bainbridge McGee lived in was called a gated community. It had a tall wall around it and a fancy iron gate at the front. You had to talk your way through to get into the gate and pass inside the community. Usually the person who opened the gate for you was brown or black. Outside the gate lived brown people. Actually, the whole wall and gate idea of the community had a lot to do with keeping the brown and black people outside. McGee's gated community was called Coral Gables. There was no coral around that anybody knew of. Coral grew in the ocean. The ocean was a huge body of water. A desert, like La Quinta, was a huge body of land with no water at all. McGee watched the plane flying above him and thought back to September 11th, 12 years ago. He realized it was September 11th again, the 12th anniversary of the date. He had once worked in one of the shorter World Trade Center buildings, not a tower, and he had a real fondness for that part of Manhattan. He really felt terrible when he saw the towers come crashing down on September 11th, 2001. He saw the towers come crashing down on his television, That was all the way across the country. When it happened, he was in La Quinta, California. When the towers came down, it caused a huge explosion of ashes and dust and debris. It made a terrible-looking dark cloud that filled all of Lower Manhattan. People had to walk out of the city to get away from this. These were other things that made September 11th a terrible day. Because Bainbridge McGee hadn't been there in Lower Manhattan... He didn't have to walk through the cloud or breathe in the terrible fire-burned air. He just... he still felt like a witness. He had watched the whole thing on television. Everybody had seen the whole thing on television. Artemis Kellogg sure had. Everybody felt pretty awful about what they had seen. At one point, people inside the tower started to jump out the windows from very high up. Some of the reporters on the television had to move out of the way to avoid getting landed on by these people falling from out of the sky. This was really a bad part of the terrible events that happened on September 11th, maybe the worst. Everybody agreed, after a day or two, that they would never talk about this part of the day again. Bainbridge McGee watched Big Wynn pick up his golf ball out of the 11th hole and replace the flag. It occurred to him that more should be said about the poor people who had jumped or fallen out of the towers out of the windows of the towers. He felt bad for them and wanted to see their story told. Maybe, he thought, this would be his next idea for a great American novel. Your shop, Miggy,' Big Wynn said. Miggy was Big Wynn's nickname for Bainbridge McGee. Nobody else ever called him this. Nobody had ever called him this until he met Big Wynn. The truth was, McGee liked his nickname. He had never been given a nickname by anybody before. He actually thought it was kind of cool. Cool was a word that that described places with a moderate temperature. Places not as cold as Canada. It was also the word everyone used to mean good. McGee's next shot was a flop shot from out of the bunker. He'd been standing in the sand for the last ten minutes while he looked up at the sky. McGee, you with us? Big Win asked. McGee was still thinking about writing the great American novel, about people jumping out of the World Trade Center on September 11th. The two other guys they were playing with were checking their smartphones. They both liked to check their phones for new messages on Facebook or pictures of their grandkids. McGee didn't have any grandchildren. As far as he knew, he didn't have any children at all. He often suspected that someone would come out of the woodwork and announce himself or herself to be his offspring. Back in the late 90s, you see, McGee had had a lot of indiscriminate sex with groupies when his first books made it big. McGee lined up his wedge and looked up toward the slope that led to the green. As he took his stance, his friends sure kept quiet. He looked down at the ball and then raised his club high over his head. He brought it down halfway and stopped. The shot really didn't require that much club. He just had to be sure to get under the ball. McGee dropped the club into his shot and hit the ball cleanly. It bounded up toward the green and the hole. Well, that was chapters four and five of As Much Protein as an Egg. You can see that we're getting into the topic of September 11th, which is what made me think about reading this book as a podcast, After I did that podcast about the story Tuesday, uh, which to me connected with what was going on around the coronavirus, already we're seeing really bad things happening with the coronavirus and some people who want to minimize it or pretend it's not there or act like everything is normal. Some people are still going to restaurants, getting their hair done, doing who knows what. There's all different levels of the ways that people are treating this situation. I wonder if people around you are getting tested. I wonder if you know people who have tested positive. I know someone who tested positive. But this person doesn't have any symptoms right now, so we're hoping that they won't come up. The symptoms, that is. But we're worried, and that's how it should be. And there's so much about this whole thing that we don't know. What I do know is that this story owes a great debt to Vonnegut for his irreverent style and ability to mix things of great seriousness, such as war and the firebombing of Dresden during World War II, which Vonnegut witnessed and was close to, and his character Billy Pilgrim witnessed and was close to. Very serious things like that with irreverence and humor, and ridiculous things, like the pizza at Costco, or the names of people who work in Midland City fast food restaurants, and what they ate for breakfast. This, in the case of Breakfast of Champions. So Kilgore Trout is a real Vonnegut character, and here we find out that Bainbridge McGee is his son. And the thing in this chapter about Kilgore Trout meeting Kurt Vonnegut and Vonnegut telling him that he would be very famous and win a Nobel Prize in medicine, all that is true from Vonnegut's fiction. You might read it. You might also read another book that just came out by a friend of mine named Elizabeth Wetmore. It's called Valentine. It's a great novel and beautiful, and she's been working on it for over 18 years. 18 years! We graduated from Iowa in 2002. And the book is just coming out. And the best news ever, it's about to hit <clears throat> the New York Times bestseller list. I don't know anyone who's ever hit the New York Times bestseller list. Scott Sigler kind of hit the extended list, the online version or something. But Beth is really hitting the shit out of it. On April tw- April 19th, which is coming up, she is going to hit number two on the New York Times bestseller list for her book, Valentine, which is a great American novel, which you should go out and buy and read. Really, it's a great American novel, written by a great American writer, my friend Elizabeth Wetmore. Check it out. It's about some things that happened, fictionally, in West Texas in the mid-1970s during Jimmy Carter's Years in Office great oil boom there and some things that went on between brown people and white people when as much protein as an egg was originally published by the folks over at kindle worlds amazon publishing most of the brown people and white people stuff was taken out taken out when i first submitted this book they didn't know what it was about they thought it had a million plot threads and it was kind of a mess so, that is in the edited version, which is available now on Amazon in print and maybe ebook one day. Here, in the director's cut, I've restored most of the stuff about brown people and black people and white people. Why? I don't know. It feels relevant to me. It also feels like something that Vonnegut would have commented on. Vonnegut used the word that starts with an N in his book Breakfast of Champions he had some characters who called other characters the N-word. I don't know. Why? Who knows? Well, we'll see. Maybe those characters were racist. It's interesting how sometimes the word racist might be said like the word terrorist. I don't know. Sometimes in this book, there are words or phrases that are in quotes when I come across a word of phrase in quotes, I tend to say it like this. I try to put extra emphasis on it. Like this. World Trade Center is one of the phrases. I appreciate you listening. I hope that you're doing well. Felt really good to hear from some of you. Paul Rogalinski in Germany sent me a really nice email. David Zwierek, the Alta Cocker. John Bivens, Gomyō Gomyō the Hoodie Monk has a new album of awesome hip hop that blends Japanese and English. I watched some of the videos on YouTube and I thought they were really good. I will put a link to one of them in the show notes of this episode. I really enjoy you listening and being a part. If you're looking to support, you can put some money in on Patreon, a dollar a month, $3 a month, whatever you like, or not put money in, or go to Amazon and write awesome reviews of all my books there. That would actually be really nice, and it's totally free for you to do it. And if you want my help looking over your reviews before you post them, I'll be glad to offer it. My email is SethHarwood@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter and all the places. Do you know of a place? where people listen to podcasts? Do you know if this podcast is available there? It's on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, maybe Pandora, maybe Google. Look to your place where you look for podcasts and see if it's there. Tell your friends about it. Spread the word. We're not working in a financially based system, but the more folks that we can use to tell each other about what's going on here and the great possibility of listening to as much protein as an egg, well, that would be wonderful. That's what it's really all about. New fans, new listeners, and growing the connection. I hope you'll do your part. I hope you're safe. I hope you're isolating. And I thank you very much for listening. More to come very soon. This is your boy saying all the good things and keep it away from those kids. Goodbye.